Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. Tonight we are gonna discuss the utmost important topic of past seven years, civil war in eastern Ukraine. Since 2014, thousands of heroic men fell fighting for what they believed in. It's time to make an objective study of this conflict that forever changed the political environment and military trajectory of Russia, Ukraine and the world. Uh, it's hard to imagine that seven years have passed already and the Donbas conflict had uh, little to no development since uh, 2015. It's always on the brink of full-scale war. It is one of the hotspots of international hostilities, a lot like Kashmir and Gaza Strip. Let's travel back to summer of uh, 2014. What were our predictions like back then? Did you, Kirill, for example, believe that Novorossia is bound to commence? Yes, um, first of all, uh, let's um, make clear that this podcast is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Donbass. Um, and yes, uh, predictions, it was very difficult to predict anything because I think nobody expected Crimea absolutely nobody it came out of nowhere at all um it had been at that point um, six years since the latest uh, kind of military adventurism from russia with the short war in georgia and uh, i think nobody really expected anything to happen in crimea but the people in crimea rose up because uh, of the revolution in ukraine and I think it was to be expected that uh, the same thing would happen in other places because the people in Crimea, um, I mean the people in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass and Novorossia, they looked at what had happened in Crimea and they thought that if they did the same, that if they would just rise up and wave Russian flags and show that they want to rejoin Russia, then Russia would inevitably um, come in in force and uh, free them and bring them back to Russia. But that didn't happen, as we all know, and but at that point it was incredibly hard to predict. I mean, I've always been a pessimist about these things. I uh, never expected it, uh, well, anything to happen. My hope was that uh, the rebels in Donbass would just uh, create some kind of uh, fair accompli, uh, that they would just uh, create facts and Russia would have no choice but to intervene directly. Which to some extent did happen, but of course not as much as any of the participants of the battles in Donbass would have liked to. So I don't know. I think I, of course I hoped for a full-scale Russian intervention and of course um, like summer 2014 was the best chance Russia would ever get. There was no moment since then uh, which would have been opportune enough for such an offensive. Common Russians think elites treat Crimea as a Russian land, and that's why they reclaimed it. But actually it uh, wasn't the case, I think. To our post-Soviet elite, Donbass uh, was uh, just another impoverished region, and Russianness is never a factor in these things. So. Maybe to Donbass people, it was obvious that Moscow will take them under 
its wing, but I don't think that any percentage of uh, Russian elite even thought about uh, Donbass or Novorossiya seriously. Yeah, I think the what, of course, I don't know exactly, I don't know what they were thinking, but I have a feeling that uh, they just use Donbass and still use it to apply pressure on the West. Like they took Crimea and they had this threat of taking Donbass too, uh, in case the West would do anything too harsh. Yeah, so one more unqualified uh, reservation and we are gonna move on to the chronological advancement of the Donbass conflict. If we are to accept that Russian Federation is a crypto colony, then the handwriting becomes pretty obvious. There are uh, a couple of uh, seemingly unresolvable conflicts across the world and all of them are a product of hasty colonialism uh, almost all of africa is like this uh, indo-pakistani kashmir palestine karabakh and so on so is this unresolvable problem between ukraine and russia a proof of colonial nature of our countries that's an interesting question, and uh, yes, uh, if you look at it from a certain perspective, it might appear so that they just created a kind of forever war that uh, will block any attempt at, I don't know, diplomatical, diplomatic uh, assimilation or anything like this, and uh, it, these kind it's of... It's a handicap, yeah. Yes, these kind of forever wars, uh, as you mentioned, like in... Uh, Palestine or anywhere else, they serve a political purpose, of course. Um, so, yeah, one might think so. Yeah, but more on that later. So, let's uh, start at 2014. I think we have to go back a bit, actually. Okay. I think we should begin with the late 2013, when the mass protests in Ukraine began, the so-called Euromaidan. The progressive, west-minded part of the Ukrainian society, uh, they were protesting against uh, the president Viktor Yanukovych's uh, decision not to sign the association agreement with the European Union. Uh, these protests on the Maidan of independence in Kiev, uh, which was used to be called the Dumska Prosit in better times, um, it was, uh, of course, sponsored by the West. Uh, we all know this. We had pictures of Victoria Nuland uh, <laughs> walking around Maidan with cookies and so on. And then there was uh, clashes between police and protesters and so on and so on. Um, then Yanukovych ran away, first to Kharkiv, uh, which was kind of the capital of the eastern Ukraine lobby that we have talked about in the History of Ukraine episode. And from there he went to Rostov in Russia. And then the radical Ukrainian nationalists who became kind of the most important, um, like the engine of the protests, they more or less took over and they started, um, even before anything really started in Donbass, they organized these kind of death squads that were running around cities in the east and um, trying to suppress the pro-Russian um, protest movement that had started up um, since Crimea was taken in... So basically what happened was that Crimea was taken right at the same time as when the protesters in Kiev, uh, they occupied 
the most important government buildings and forced Yanukovych to flee. So you cannot uh, look at this uh, like independent from each other. On the same day after the coup in Kiev, on February 23rd, uh, the Ukrainian government ratified the infamous language law that would um, basically force uh, people in eastern Ukraine, and there were less than 10% Ukrainian speakers in eastern Ukraine, uh, would enforce to have Ukrainian as the official language in schools and government agencies and so on. And uh, basically what the political protest was, at that point, uh, they, the protesters the in eastern Ukraine didn't necessarily wish to um, secede even from, the, from Ukraine. What they wanted was uh, to protest against this new law, which they absolutely correctly interpreted as an ethnic suppression, as an act of basically ethnic cleansing to purge the Russian language from Ukraine, uh, which upset the 20-year balance between Eastern and Western Ukraine. Uh, that was the only thing that held the country together. So it was obvious, even in late 13, that this would lead to civil war. Um, Many people uh, predicted this. Uh, I myself wrote an article in, I think, October 2013 that uh, this would inevitably lead to civil war in Ukraine half a year before anything even started and half a year before Crimea was even taken. So what happened uh, was that the people were desperate. Um, they were absolutely sure, and rightfully so, that the new government was nationalist, hardcore nationalist, Ukrainian nationalists, and that they would uh, do many things that were bad for the Russian population, especially of Eastern Ukraine, and which, if you're being honest, is not the like 50-60% of uh, Ukrainian statistics, but more like 90% uh, who were ethnic Russian. Mm. Then, in early April, uh, there were anti-government protests in Donetsk, and Kurugansk, and Kharkiv. Um, the case of Kharkiv is pretty interesting because it was the main hub of pro-Russian tendencies in eastern Ukraine, but the aforementioned nationalist death squads, they uh, went to Kharkiv and uh, basically suppressed everything before anything could happen. And then on, um, we have to mention, uh, we have to talk about Igor Strelkov, the leader of the Russian resistance in Ukraine. Yeah, before that, uh, I'm just wondering why the pro-Russian side seemed very peaceful and they didn't have their own version of uh, death squads, the ultras and the rest. Why? In the like 80 to 90 percent Russian country, there are no football hooligans who are pro-Russian. Well, they didn't expect anything bad to happen. Um, the people were accustomed to the last 20 years or so or 25 years of peaceful, more or less peaceful coexistence with the Ukrainian nationalists who didn't have too much power. But then they took power and um, the Russian Federation, of course, has uh, never invested in like uh, Russian organizations in Eastern Ukraine. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. Not a single pro-Russian organization that could have put up any kind of legal resistance or anything or political resistance. Um, the uh, the pro-Russian uh, side, uh, so to say, in eastern Ukraine was motivated exclusively by economic concerns. 
So there was nothing political about it. Uh, hence, uh, there was the level of Russian self-organization in Eastern Ukraine was zero. It's always some babushkas and, you know, some pensioners, uh, pretty sad sight. No aggressive use to be had. Yeah, of course, uh, these organizations were supported by the Ukrainian, pro-Ukrainian side, and uh, they were basically spent the last 20 years training for exactly this. Yeah. So about Strelkov. Uh, Strelkov is an interesting topic that uh, we could uh, spend a whole podcast on its own. The main question, he was an uh, acting FSB officer. So uh, was it FSB PSYOP? Uh, it was not. There is uh, direct personal uh, testimony that uh, Strelkov, he was in Crimea, right? Uh, he had spent uh, the last years, like he wasn't some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, James Bond. Uh, he had a boring desk job uh, in, the anti, in, the, in the anti-terrorism unit, basically. And he was in Crimea, um, basically making sure that there were no terrorist uh, organizations, like you had the Crimean Tatars, who were, suppo- who were supported by Ukrainian nationalists and uh, like blowing up infrastructure in Crimea. They wanted to collapse bridges and so on poison water systems, whatever. And what Strelkov was doing in uh, March 14 in Crimea was basically well well within his uh, official actual job of being an, an anti-terrorist guy. And uh, he was involved in planning of uh, operations in eastern Ukraine. He was involved, but um, he was specifically told not to cross the border. Um, this is uh, well explained in uh, Alexander Zhuchkovsky's book, 85 Days of Slavyansk. Um, our good friend Peter Nimitz from Twitter is currently translating this book, so look out for it. It's a great book, um, and it describes the whole early uh, vibes of the Donbass war very well. And uh, so basically, Strelkov uh, knew that he would be told by his superiors not to enact any of those plans they had made, um, the FSB and the Ministry of Defense and the Kremlin, they all told Strelkov to stay put and to wait maybe. But before <laughs> before he could be told this, he just uh, turned off his phone and uh, stopped communicating with his superiors. And uh, basically, so he didn't want to contradict direct orders, so he just uh, turned off his phone, his uh, computer, and he... Uh, pretended that he didn't get those orders. It so uh, reminds me of the Great Game episodes. Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, Strelkov behaved... Um, I mean, Strelkov, I think it was like the best fucking period ever in Strelkov's life. He was at heart a romantic lapper. Like he was active in the reenactment scene, um, you know, like people who dress up uh, in historical... Mm, in historical uniforms and reenact battles and so on. There are funny pictures of Strelkov, like uh, wearing in a furry a costume. Yes, uh, yeah. the great <laughs> anime furry war. Yes, <laughs> and also and also yeah. in, uh, in like uh, Roman armor and uh, ancient Roman armor and so on. It's all very funny. So and he was a monarchist. He was a lifelong member of various monarchist organizations. So he he was like a a trot lapper par excellence and. At that point, he had his chance to actually make it real. 
and uh, he just took it. He it's real. He went to, yes, it's absolutely fucking real. So he went to Slavyansk um, with a couple of guys and like 40,000 US totters in his pocket. I don't remember if it was his own money or if as it far was the money he got from, from Baradai. Um. Yes, he got uh, money from Baradai mm -hmm. and then he also got uh, money transfers from Malafeev and uh, some maybe other figures. So, um, I don't know, I if he was to disobey the direct order, uh, would he receive uh, any money from any people, important people in Russia? Like Malafeev, for example. Well, I think the Malafeev money, it came actually a bit later, when he was already yes. there. And yes. it would have been extremely bad optics to do anything to him. While, Well, he basically, he put the Kremlin before facts. He had made a fact, he had taken Slavyansk uh, with his couple of guys. And um, that was it. They couldn't do anything. Uh, they had to support him. Like, they were on the fence. Russia was on the fence, whether they should support the uprisings on Donbass. But Strokov uh, gave them no chance. They had to. Actually, yes, the main argument against uh, Strelkov being an FSB asset and uh, doing what he's told, which would be obvious, of course, uh, since he was an FSB officer and still is, main proof of uh, him disobeying the order is uh, the life that he leads right now in Moscow. Because he generally is pretty much poor and <laughs> by the standards of uh, his uh, fame uh, he drives metro and subway and stuff uh, he just uh, doesn't look as uh, protected by anyone no one wants to do anything with him right now in russia yeah so the precise chronology of what happened was basically that on april 7th 2014 uh, in Donetsk, they declared the independent Donetsk People's Republic. And four days later, uh, Strelkov uh, took Slavyansk, and from then, uh, Slavyansk became the center of resistance. Mm. Then, in the next couple of days, they took uh, uh, Inakiv, Makievka, Gorlovka, and so on. And uh, three Various weeks. Various villages, yes. Yes, three weeks later, the Lugansk People's Republic was proclaimed. And uh, the protesters uh, or militiamen took uh, the city administration in Lugansk, which is a pretty large city. And then in the beginning of May, they made a referendum uh, that was pretty clear. Um, that was like. Actually, yes. yes how much do you think uh, people lived in Slavyansk before the war? Uh, before the war, it was um, like. It was not super large, but like a hundred thousand or so. One hundred and fifty thousand, yeah. which which is pretty much uh, pretty huge, I think. And uh, now it's uh, at least uh, fifty percent of the population had fled. The yes, city. of course, the city and was. Now, uh, yeah. It was besieged. It was under siege. It was uh, the I think the siege of Slavyansk, uh, as the book title says, eighty-five days of Slavyansk. Uh, almost three months. Uh, it was a crazy siege, and uh, the earliest episode of the Donbas war was the craziest because the Ukrainian military response was not yet well coordinated. Uh, they didn't get yet, uh, like, um, I mean, later they had American advisors telling them what to do and stuff, but uh, at that point they were on their own, and it was absolutely fucking crazy how 
uh, Strelkov, who basically had no armor, no anti-aircraft anti except for heavy machine guns. The only piece of heavy armament he had was a uh, 2S9 Nonna, which is basically a, uh, well, a BTR, so like an armored personnel carrier and with a 120 millimeter mortar. And that was uh, the only piece of armor that he had. And with it, he was like uh, shooting down Ukrainian helicopters and uh, blowing up tanks and so on. It was uh, like, uh, you wouldn't believe it. Um, it was like something from the Bush War in Rhodesia. Yeah. So since April to 4th of July, which is pretty uh, interesting date, 4th of July, Strelkov started to move out of Slavyansk. What happened? Why weren't they able to hold the city? Well, because they didn't receive reinforcements from Russia. They expected uh, to get those, but they didn't. They held out as long as was possible, the Donbass militia. Mm, and all the plans basically hinged on uh, the Russian army coming to the rescue, which didn't happen, obviously. So they had to pull back because they... Uh, because Ukraine was just throwing uh, a lot of people at them. There were like, uh, like a shit ton. Uh, there were, um, so what you have to understand is that uh, Strelkov's unit was 54 people with which he took Slavyansk. 54 people with which he took a city of 150,000. Uh, the vast majority of which, of course, was supportive. And uh, at the moment uh, when they left the city, there was around 1,000 people in the militia. While Ukraine had been throwing 30,000 soldiers at the city. So it's quite obvious that they couldn't uh, defend uh, against uh, such, a, such a power, such a force. Wasn't there a huge outrage in Russian political sphere about the Slavyansk and Strelkov leaving it? I wouldn't say there was like, a, like in Russia there were specific people uh, who had uh, political interest in discrediting Stilkov. Uh, the communists, uh, they really didn't like it. Like, uh, I think uh, at the forefront of the media campaign against Stilkov was actually like, you know, uh, Kurginian uh, and so on. And, and his, uh, those communist guys who didn't like Stilkov for being a nationalist and a monarchist, basically. Um, so yeah, it's it was quite a weird uh, time because uh, communists and monarchists obviously hated each other and uh, when the Russian spring started the monarchist and uh, the communist had the same goal or they had most of the communists of course uh, they were against Maidan and they were broadly for the uh, Russian spring and the Donbass militias and so on so uh, they became strange bedfellows and they didn't like it very much. So Strelkov, as uh, the most obvious uh, monarchist, military larper and stuff, he was uh, the front of this attack by the communists. Communists uh, bemoaned that he betrayed Slavyansk. I remember this kind of talk. Mm -hmm. uh, what I actually uh, wanted to talk a bit about was um, like the regime that Strelkov had built in Slavyansk, which was a, a kind of funny military dictatorship. And, uh, Very Rangelian. Yes, it was uh, like extremely um, militarized. Um, 
Strelkov was very hard on crime, extremely hard. Like um, uh, this is also from Zhuchkovsky's book. Um, he wanted to stop drug dealing in Slavyansk. Uh, well, it's a typical like you know Eastern Ukraine, poor, full of commie blocks. So there's a lot of crime, a lot of drug dealing, and Strelkov simply proclaimed that they had taken like documents from the local police and they knew every drug dealer in the city and he said that if they didn't leave the city within two days they would just all be shot and it worked it worked like a charm all the drug dealers fled and there was no drug dealing uh, during strelkov's rule that's in why 50 percent of population <laughs> left <laughs> yes and uh, he also had very um creative form of criminal justice like uh, people of course, uh, some people were just shot. It was martial law, like marauders and rapists and murderers, of course, were shot. But for non-violent offenses, uh, people weren't put in jail. They were put to dig trenches, uh, which was also quite dangerous because the like they were being shelled by Ukrainian artillery and so on. But that was uh, the kind of, uh, instead of prison, uh, Strelkov, there were basically just two punishments in uh, Slavyansk uh, for like dangerous violent crime you would be shot and for uh, crime that didn't warrant an execution you were just put to dig trenches around the city. For those who don't understand where Slavyansk is located, actually it's Slovensk, <laughs> however it's called. Slavyansk is uh, the westernmost point of uh, the territory that was under control of Russian insurgents. So it uh, was a pretty big deal because Slavyansk could be waypoint to Kiev and the rest by ceding Slavyansk and not being able to reinforce uh, because Russian Federation didn't support uh, Strelkov as much as it should have. They had to retreat. Yes, uh, they had to, they, they, and they had to fall back quite a bit. Um, they basically fall back to the southeast um, around the front line uh, after... Donetsk, yes? Yes, uh, the front line was basically uh, Donetsk, Gorlovka, Saur, Magile, uh was the front line uh, in the south and yes, it is, it is true that Slavyansk w would have been extremely important for a possible offensive on Kharkiv but uh, Kharkiv had been cleansed and purged quite uh, well by Ukrainian nationalists and death squads so yeah and uh, all the villages across slavyansk like uh, what happened to them like kramatorsk is it a village да город причём довольно большой тысяч человек офигеть просто Краматорск. Если бы не война, никогда бы же не услышал в жизни mm -hmm. про Краматорск. Okay, so what happened to Краматорск and uh, the rest of the cities and villages across the Slavyansk? Uh, well, yeah, Краматорск uh, was also left on July 5th. Краматорск was south of Slavyansk. Uh, these were two, like, укрепрайоны, uh, where the insurgents or militiamen were defending themselves against uh, the frontal Ukrainian assault and they had to leave both Kramatorsk and Slavyansk uh, in the beginning of July and uh, it actually became kind of the HQ of the Ukrainians in that region. That in conclusion, imagine being a history military LARPer like Strelkov. You are an ex-FSB officer 
on the weekends you are going to the woods with your friends reenacting uh, Napoleonic battles and whatnot, White Guard and Civil War era and stuff. To be fair, Stilkov uh, was uh, engaged in a war. He yes, took he fought uh, in every chance. Yeah, yeah he fought, fought in Chechnya and he also fought in Pridnistrovia, mm -hmm. I think. So, yes, but uh, to be the leader of this military group enacting laws uh, in the captured city of uh, hundred thousand plus citizens it's pretty huge it's a, a perfect larp ultimate larp just uh, came real you know i'm i'm not a fan of him but uh, many people are and especially in the west i think it's like the most popular modern russian author uh, victor pilevin in his first novel uh chapaev i pustata um, there is a thing, it's uh, a machine gun made of clay and uh, it is used to destroy reality. It basically, it's kind of an allegory for Buddhism and the Buddha, he uses this clay machine gun and wherever the bullets hit, reality dissolves. And that's basically what Strelkov did. Like he took this clay machine gun and he just shot at reality, which was boring a boring desk job, um, this uh, a boring bureaucratic world, and he just made it an adventure again. And yes. uh, it's a complete mastery of a reality that he took 50 guys and he kicked off the largest war in Europe uh, like since World War II. Well, changed well, history forever. Yes. And in any way, Strokov will be remembered in the history books for this. It's like Office Space, the movie, but uh, turned up a notch. <laughs> and what more? That's kind of uh, where we go to the next topic, but it's connected. Um, the whole time Strelkov was there, he kept posting. He was a very prolific internet poster on uh, like forums and stuff. And, uh, and uh, while he was commanding the troops in Slovensk, he kept posting. And it was basically everyone in Russia was reading his posts and his updates and like uh, they were well written and funny. He made a lot of jokes and so on. And uh, I think uh, I don't know if anybody actually compiled those posts into a book or something. I think that should be done if it hasn't, uh, because it's really awesome to like you can read war memoirs uh, that were written like 20 years after the fact or something. But this is like li he was live posting his war. And uh, this is pretty awesome. So, and the next topic uh, is the the very specific um, meme culture that grew out of the war. Like, it's not a new thing. You had the same in happening before in Syria, where like uh, artists on the chance uh, would be live posting everything and discussing the weapons and the tactics and video footage and so on. But Donbass turned it up a notch. Because this was not somewhere in the Middle East uh, where like, uh, you had to actually dig for uh, video footage. This was like a more or less civilized modern country. So people were also live posting the war. They were like posting videos on Instagram, on uh, Facebook, on Twitter. And um, like you had militiamen blowing up a Ukrainian tank and then, and then uploading that to Instagram with some funny caption. It had a strong influence on popular culture, I would say. And this is where the free segment of our podcast ends.
Just admit it, you're hooked and you need to learn more. Free yourself from tedious American monoculture and subscribe to Russians with Attitude.